0: As you well know, uh, we've been talking about fear and the various kinds of fear and how to deal with them for quite a few weeks now, and I want to finish this up today, and I promise that I will. Uh, we're going to cover the whole New Testament in one sermon, so I guess I'd better get started. It will be a survey. It certainly won't deal with every scripture that has to do with this subject, but I picked out the more frequent, the more poignant, the more... Uh, that have to do specifically with our lives. So we've seen how the fathers in the Old Testament, the prophets, various people of God have dealt with both their fear of man and conditions and with their fear of God. Because one is unhealthy and the other is healthy. Now I want to address some of the things that Christ himself and the disciples, later apostles, had to say about this subject because it becomes very, very important for the New Testament church and especially the New Testament church at the end of the age when all these things that we've always worried about happening and knew were coming have started and are increasing now day by day. Most of you, I'm sure, have heard of the Earthquake in Chile this morning, a lot of destruction, some dead people, they were more prepared down there because they've had a series of earthquakes over the years, so they built better and had the money to do it with, uh, which they didn't have the opportunity for in Haiti. So perhaps the death toll will not be nearly so great. Uh, but at the same time, we have increasing earthquakes and the various things that Scripture says will happen here at the end, and I think they will become more and more devastating as time goes on. But let's go to Matthew 28 to get into this, and I want to pick it up in verse 23. Uh, Christ and the disciples were going to cross the waters. It says in verse 23 in Matthew 8, And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea. Insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, so the sea had become so great that the waves were actually crashing over the boat and washing within the boat. It must have been a fairly good-sized boat because uh, he was—I was—it it doesn't say he was uh, down below, but he was asleep. I don't know how you sleep if the waves are crashing over you. Maybe there was it was a big enough boat that that he was down below. I don't know. I, I had that impression, but I don't see that here. Maybe it's in another account, or maybe I just had a wrong impression. At any rate, he was asleep. Now, notice that the fact that Christ was there did not prevent the storm from arising. But he was there... And the disciples were very afraid, but he was asleep. He was not bothered by it. And his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we perish. So they were truly frightened. And when you have waves crashing over the boat, I've been there, had it happen. uh, It is a very frightening experience. When you're in 30 or 35-foot seas and the boat just goes over the crest of the wave and drops and hits, and you think it's going to splinter into pieces, it is a very frightful experience. So I know about how scared they were because I've been there. It was not a good time. His disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, We perish. And he said to them, Why are you fearful? Fearful. O you of little faith. Now, I've mentioned this concept before in this series, but Christ puts it right together here and shows that a fear of circumstance, a fear of physical death, a frightened mode that we might get in and not be able to control is a lack of faith. It is fear of conditions more than respect and belief in God, is what it amounts to. And he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. It was as calm as it had been turbulent. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? He was telling them that under those conditions, they needed to be able to trust God and believe that he would do what was best for them to be done. That is a very difficult thing to accomplish. Now, men are going to fear during the end times, so much so that they want the rocks of the mountains to fall upon them. That's how frightened they will be. And yet we, seeing all this coming, need to be fortifying ourselves ahead of time, preparing our minds, our hearts, our emotions, to be able to trust God. And the way we do that is in smaller things, we put our trust in him. And then as bigger things come, we will have trained ourselves to trust and have faith and not fear because we know that we are children of God and there is really nothing to fear. Now, does that mean that those feelings, your heart and your throat might not come at times? because you can be in conditions that truly are, to a human being, frightful. So it is only natural that those emotions would begin to well up inside you, and the fear begin to rise. In that case, you have to control your feelings and your emotions, and not look at the conditions around you, but look to God in heaven above. Now, this is something that has to be trained ahead of time, or it will not be there. It is the little things in life, day by day, where we learn to trust God, that we develop and build that faith and trust. You know, when you first meet somebody, there are people that you, through gut feeling or whatever, tend to trust a little more than others if their body language is such, their eyes shifty, and so on, that you get a feeling about them right away, then you must overcome that in order to ever begin to have any trust in them. Others seem open, they seem direct, uh, they're easier to come to have a trust in than others. But we can be fools. But with somebody you meet, it takes time to get to know them, to see them under different circumstances, to see their reactions, to know what their makeup is, so that you begin can begin to be comfortable with them and know that anything, you you see, a level of trust grows. There might be a time when you want to discuss things that are very close to you or very emotional or very private, with someone, and the number of people that you're willing to bear yourself with is usually very small. And you have to have a level of trust with them (coughs) so that you can do that. That doesn't come easy. It's built over time. It's seeing how they react. And it's the same with God. We have to develop a relationship with God where we get to know him through reading his word, through seeing what he does, seeing him enact or act within the lives of those around us and in our own lives, and we begin to build confidence in him and trust in him. That's why he says, if you're faithful in little, you will be faithful in much because you have built that relationship of trust and confidence. Christ had such a level of confidence that he could sleep when waves were crashing over the boat. And he had enough confidence in his Father in heaven that he could speak and the waves would subside, the storm would quit. Now I don't know what it'll take for all of us to get to that level, but it says that we will be able to do greater works in this end time than he did. He said that himself, and that the disciples, later become apostles, did as well. They healed the sick, they resurrected the dead those things, I believe, will happen again. And some of us will be involved. That's the kind of relationship we have to build with Christ himself and with our Father above all. He wants us to get to that level of faith. And he upbraided them, O you of little faith. You need to grow in faith, in other words, he told his disciples. Well, what would they face later on? Martyrdom and all the events leading up to that. And that faith had to be built day by day until they reached the point that they were able to face those huge trials and tests at the end of their lives. And their lives did not end naturally. They were cut off as still fairly young men, except for the Apostle John we should come to the point we can do these same things. Let's go to Luke... No, Matthew 14. Matthew 14. I want to pick this one up. Now, here again we have a boat. Verse 25, Matthew 14, 25. And in the fourth watch of the night... Christ went unto them, walking on the sea. Well, he set an example, but we should follow in his steps. So they were in the boat. He stayed behind, caught up with them later, and he decided he would just simply walk out to the boat and see them there. But he was even going to walk on by. Uh, He would have eaten them there. So he's walking on the sea, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. So they thought it was a demon, and cried out for fear. Now people today don't, I guess, understand or have those same fears, so they'll go to a movie like Avatar, which is totally demon-inspired, uh, and they'll actually go there to be entertained and watch pure garbage that they should be afraid of and afraid to go see. But they say, oh, it's just a movie, and they go anyway and see garbage like that. Not only is it garbage, it is a spiritual thing inspired by Satan and demons that we should be staying away from. It says, resist the devil. Don't go watch his entertainment. they did have a healthy respect for demons and stayed away, apparently, from anything that might look like or have any semblance of such. So they up the spirit out there, and it scared them. But straightway Emmanuel spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered and said, Lord, if it be you, bid me come to you on the water. Pretty bold statement. Can I walk out? If it's really you, can I walk out there? He said, come. Sure, come on out here. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Emmanuel. He didn't just go over the prow or the bow or the side, the gunnel, and sink. He actually got out of the boat and walked on the water. That's Peter, fisherman. He'd never done that before, before he'd had to swim. But when he saw the wind, boisterous, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. As long as he kept his eye on Christ, he could literally walk on water, trusting Christ. The minute he got his mind off him and on conditions, same problem we just read about in chapter 10. When he looked at the conditions, he said, this is impossible." There was wind, that means there was waves, and then he may have suddenly realized that was also water down there, and then don't walk on water. And immediately... Christ stretched forth his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? All it took was doubt. And he couldn't do it anymore. He believed he could when Christ said, if you can, come on. He believed it. Completely. Until he looked at conditions. And suddenly, Nothing worked anymore. It's a matter of faith. His fear overcame his belief, his trust, his faith. couldn't handle it. Why did you doubt? Well, you see, you have to overcome the lack of trust, the lack of confidence, faith is belief, it is trust. Will we be called upon to do some of these things? Why are they here? What is their purpose? To teach us faith, to teach us trust and confidence. I fear that Every one of us here would have trouble stepping out of a boat and walking to shore. Now, there needs to be a reason. Whatever we need to do to get where God is, we have to swallow our fear and trust and go to him. Wasn't that the point here? Just can I come out to you? Yes, come. Are we instructed to go to God or to come to Christ? Yes, come. But you will enter or encounter all kinds of problems on the journey to get close to God. And you have to have the faith and the trust to overcome those and keep moving to get near Him. Now was it necessary for Peter to walk on water at that point? Not really except that he felt he wanted to be close to Christ. And that was enough reason for Christ to say, yes, come on, walk on water. If your object is to get close to me, do whatever it takes. And he was accomplishing it until he got fearful of conditions. Now let's go to Luke 1. <clears throat> uh, here is the situation where Mary had become pregnant. And here is a prayer she prayed. So let's go down to Luke 1, verse 46. And Mary said, "'My soul does magnify the eternal.'" She looked to God, she understood that the only way she could have gotten pregnant was through the Holy Spirit. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the low estate of his handmaiden, for behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty has done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He has showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree, speaking of herself. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Where did Mary look? She looked back to Abraham. She looked back to the promises God had made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And she magnified God and spoke of having fear for him from generation to generation. Now, she was speaking from her perspective, her generation and looking forward, at that point, not backward. Because we have succeeded Mary, generation after generation, until today. So it is time for us to look to the same power, the same source that she looked, that had made her pregnant, and she understood what an incredible thing that was, that just a lowly handmaiden, she wasn't anything, She must have had good character and someone that God felt confident in using. And he has had confidence in using you and me. Amazing, is it not? But he would have called us. We need to have the same attitude of humility that Mary had and trust in God in the same way that she did. Fear him from generation to generation. So this isn't the fear of waves. This is the awe, the the glory, that we hold in God. The fear, the one who is able to make all these things around us. You know, you've probably been in museums or places in your life where you're kind of awed by what was there. Maybe the Space Museum or something in Washington, wherever you, you know, different places you may have gone. Or even art museums where you see some of the works of the great masters like in the Louvre. I've seen some of those and they're just amazing. I can barely draw straws. <clears throat> I usually get the short one at that. And yet these people can draw or paint pictures that are so real, they're unbelievable almost. So you're sort of struck with a sense of awe. Well, what about the one who created the earth and all the symbiotic relationships in it and the universe and how they ever go round and round and don't collide unless he allows it? Everything works beautifully. It's awesome. There's the one we fear. Not conditions on the earth. He made the earth. He can change them. Christ understood that. There's wind and wave, well, God made wind, God made waves, God made water. He can stop it. He believed that, and it happened. And he was walking on water, and he believed that can happen. And Peter did momentarily, till he took his eyes off the source of power, and then he began to sink. So the object lesson here is don't fear what's around you, The fear he who can control everything. That's where our fear belongs. And it is awe, and at the same time it's just palpable outright fear, isn't it? Remember how people have reacted when Christ or an angel would come, and the very power of God was there, and they felt that power emanating from those beings, and fell on their faces, scared them. But such power could be made apparent before them. Sometimes even a human being can cause a certain amount of fear within us. A large angry boss can do it at work at times. Your throat constricts, uh-oh, here it comes. We should have both a real fear of the power of God and at the same time as a feeling of awe at the power that is there and great respect of what he is and can do. All right, let's go to Luke 8. <coughs> Luke 8 and start in verse 49. Verse 49. While he yet spoke, there comes uh, one from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, Your daughter is dead, trouble not the master. Uh, He can't fix this. Uh, You know, they're not this one this one's not sick anymore, it's dead, so forget about it. But when Emmanuel heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not. Believe only, and she shall be made whole. A death is something that we all on one, to one degree or another, or one way or another, fear. I don't so much fear death, which is nothingness for the moment, as much as I fear the process of getting to that nothingness. It, it's, it's the dying that we're afraid of. Death is peaceful. There's nothing there. But those who are left behind, have all kinds of fears and worries and insecurities and and so on. So he said, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. And when he came to the house he suffered no man to go in save Peter, James, and John, the father, the mother of the maiden. And all wept and bewailed her, but he said, Weep not, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. I mean, dead's dead. Look. Doesn't look natural, looks dead. It always mystifies me that somebody will see somebody that they've powdered up a little bit and put rouge on and, and made them look as alive as they can, and people say, it looks so natural. And I think, no, look dead to me. But that makeup just doesn't get it. So they knew that this girl was dead. And he put them all out. See, their disbelief and their lack of faith was a negative in the room that he did not want. So he put them all out. Disciples, father, mother, everybody. And took her by the hand and said, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again and she rose straightway, and he commanded to give her meat, and her parents were astonished But he told them not to tell any man what was done. That's a simple thing, he said. He didn't give them a whole lot of instruction, did he? He said, fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. How much did they believe? Not a whole lot, because they laughed in to scorn, and were still in disbelief. So he had to put that lack of belief away, get them out of there, and then his faith could do it in spite of their disbelief. Had they had that simple trust, he could have kept them in the room, and she would have been resurrected. But remember, when he went to Nazareth, the town where he grew up, they all knew who he was. He could do no great miracles. He only healed a very few sick folk because of their unbelief. He had no honor in his own country where he had come from. Is it any wonder, when you stop to think about it, why God would have his people separate from an unbelieving world? We like from time to time or to be with friends out in the world or we want to make friends out in the world, people we want to run across at work or whatever and want to spend time and fellowship with them perhaps. And we don't realize how much that weakens our own faith and resolve and how easily we are pulled away from belief and trust and obedience to God to do the things they want to do because they're not going to want you around unless you go to the same excess of things that they do. So they're not going to change. You go downhill when you're around that kind of people. It destroys your belief. It destroys your attitude. Why does God want his people apart? So they can learn to be with him, to trust him, to be guided by him, to have a relationship with him, and that relationship doesn't mix with what's out there in the world. He tells us to get away from Babylon. Don't go down into Egypt. Our fellowship with the Father and the Son, it's not with the world. And he says, if you fellowship with the world, you are my enemies. He says that in so many words, but we willingly flick that away sometimes because of what we might want to do. But can you see here that having people around who didn't believe was a negative that caused Christ himself to put them out so that he could actually accomplish something. He had to separate it. So we have to make a difference between the clean and the unclean and have our fellowship with that which is clean. You see... There's a reason you don't go see Avatar or anything of that ilk or what are the ones with the little kids and the demons and the witches Uh, that's so popular, I can't even think of the name of it. Yeah, Potter, Harry Potter. It's abominable. No Christian should ever see that garbage. And yet people in the church of God will go do it. Somehow they don't grasp that Satan is behind that stuff. God told us, stay away from the spirits that peep and mutter, the evil spirits. And those things are filled with that. And yet it's looked upon as entertainment and it's okay. No, it is not. God himself, Christ, Put the unbelieving away. And he tells us to put Satan away. Don't go near him or his culture or its society. We are to come out of her, my people, and some of you don't believe that. You want to stay close to it. Let your children be a part of it, lest you drive them away. No, it's not you driving them away from God, it's the world pulling them away from God, and you wallet. Let's get the point. Are you going to let your children be pulled away from God and into this world because you cannot make a stand against the world? God will hold you responsible. Laugh this to scorn if you want, but those are the words of Christ himself. We need to take a serious look at some of the things we allow. We'll blame the church because your children go into the world. No. We're trying everything we know to help separate from the world. Maybe our children sometimes don't want to separate from the world any more than we do. But if they stay with the world and they do the things of the world, then they're going to suffer with the world. And we may as well. Let's not sit on the fence. We need to be on God's side. Why will you die, O Israel, when you have every opportunity to live? Why will you die? Let's go to Luke 12. and I I want to spend some time in this chapter because it is full, uh, more probably here than anywhere else. Luke 12, in the meantime... When they were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod upon one another, stepped on each other, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, Beware you of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. They appear to be okay, but aren't. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Now there's something to fear, isn't it? God says everything is going to come out in the wash. Can't hide anything. Sooner or later it will appear. So if we're doing things that we would not want people to know, then we better be afraid in the right way, because it'll come out. Therefore, whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which you have spoken in the ear and closet shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Even good things. We talk about God and good things in private, don't we? And yet, sooner or later, one way or another, that which is good is one to be held up and ridiculed by the world, and it will be shouted from the housetops, won't it? So not just sin, but even the right and the good is one to be put down and proclaimed by those around us that it is evil. And I say to you, my friends, didn't he call us friends? says, you're not just servants anymore, you're my friends. Can you have a better friend than Christ? Be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that, have no more that they can do. That's all they can do to you is kill your body. End of it. Now, they might can do that. It has happened before. Now, could Nebuchadnezzar kill the body? Well, he tried, and God didn't let it happen. But normally speaking, he could have. And in some cases, God let righteous people die. He didn't save Isaiah. He didn't save some others who were martyred in those days. But he did, for a purpose, save Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. And he said he is going to save some here in the end, for his purposes, as a light to the world. So don't fear that, but I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he is killed has power to cast into the grave. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings and not one of them is forgotten before God? Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, he's telling us here that he has care over little birdies, and he even numbers the hair on your head. That is how detailed his interest is in our lives. We think, well, maybe this isn't something that would interest God. If he goes to the trouble of counting your hair, he's more interested in you than you are. And it's hard to get more interested in yourself than anything else. We are so self-centered by nature. Very concerned about ourselves. We don't count our hair. Well, Nelson may. Uh, Where did that come from? I should have said that. We kid him about, but there's lots of bald heads and mine's getting thin too. It's just too difficult of God for most of us. And we're not that interested in just how many we have. We're only interested if they're getting real thin. But God numbers them. So he's pretty interested in you as a human being and especially once you're converted, and are a part of his family, a part of his church, a part of, hopefully, his kingdom. Then he becomes intensely interested in you, what you do, what you think, how you act and react. Also I say to you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the son of man also confess before the angels of God. I've said before, they used to instruct us to go and not tell them you from the church, worldwide church of God, but you are representative of Ambassador College. They didn't want to admit that we were a church in some respects for fear it would bring persecution. We were interested in when the tribulation might occur. We wanted it to be done and the kingdom of God to be here. And yet we feared persecution so badly that we would dodge it and try to be a representative of Ambassador College rather than God Almighty and Christ himself. That's how fearful we were. Now that was wrong. We should be ready to stand up for God in our relationship with him. Sometimes it's simply a matter of I don't want, and you probably don't either to be lumped with religion per se or Christianity per se, not a fear of persecution. But when they say Church of God, I think, yeah, but I'd like to explain that, you know. I'd like you to know what the church stands for as opposed to you lumping us in with churchianity. Um uh, because I don't want to go there. But we can't deny him. We must be willing to know, to admit and stand up for God. Now, that doesn't mean that we go out and start preaching to everybody that he to be part of God's church. That isn't the way he would have it done. He has a plan and a formulation and a way to get the message to the world, which he will do soon. Okay, and whosoever, verse 10, shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But to him that blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven. And when they bring you to the synagogues and the magistrates and powers, take no anxious thought how or what thing you shall answer or what you shall say. Now, before we go before the IRS or whoever, we think pretty carefully, don't we, about what we should say or how we should say it. Uh, And we need to be prepared in those instances to have an answer that works. So you have to plan. But he says, don't be fearful or anxious when they bring you before the synagogues and the magistrates and powers. So the political powers and the religious powers that we will face. Talking to his disciples here. Don't worry about it. I will give you the answers you need. Now, isn't that better, really? Isn't it better to pray ahead of time, God, I know there's trouble coming, Uh, please give me the words to say, rather than spending all night up worrying about how you're supposed to say it to get you off the hook. Why worry? Why be in fear? Just simply ask and trust that the answer will be given when the need arises. Now, I said last week, and I meant it, I don't think that should arise with most of us. Because if we've been called to do a job and be a light to the world, then we will survive to be that light. But those who do go into the tribulation are mostly going to be killed. Now, if we don't do our part now, yes, we could wind up out in the tribulation. I'm not saying being in this group is going to protect you. And I've decried those who say that. You know, just be in our group and everything will be fine. Not necessarily. I'm saying that that remnant that God puts together to build his temple at the end are those he is going to protect. Whether we'll be in that group or not may yet, on an individual basis, have room for decision. So that does balance the concept. Verse 13, And one of the company said to him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Security is a big issue with people. We worry about security. Will we have what we need? Can we get by Will we have a job? Will we have money? Will we have food? Will we have this and that? And he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I'll pull down my barns, and I'll build greater. There will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have much goods. Laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this night your soul shall be required of you. Then whose shall those things be which you have provided? So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We need to be laying up treasure in heaven and not worrying about treasure on earth. Now, is it wrong to work? and to produce with your hand. Is it wrong to be wealthy? No, it is not. That's another subject. God made certain men quite wealthy in the past, caused them to have wealth. So wealth per se is not wrong. It is the trust in wealth that is wrong. It is the self-centeredness that sometimes goes with it that is wrong. His barns were full, Why tear them down and make bigger ones? He had plenty already. Couldn't he have given it to others and been charitable? Yes, he could have. But he was selfish to the core, and that's the point. And he wanted more and more security. How many billions do you really need? One might suffice. And maybe even a lot less than that could suffice but we tend to be security conscious and worry. Didn't Christ say in the Sermon on the Mount not to worry about tomorrow, what you'll eat, what you'll drink? Now, do you prepare, do you work so that you produce something to eat and drink? Yes, but you don't lay awake at night worrying about that, You say, Father, I'm willing, I'm ready to serve you, I will work, show me what to do, help me find a job, help me find a way to provide for my family, and then trust him to do so. Does that mean then that you sit in your house and don't go try to find a job? No, faith without works is dead. So you don't sit and wait, you go look, but the point is you don't worry. Have you ever noticed that worry isn't any fun? Why indulge in it? It's not a bit of fun. It makes you upset, bothers you. Oh, I shouldn't worry so much. Well, then don't. Just stop. How's it working for you? Not too well. Does it accomplish anything? No. You can sit in your house and worry all night long, and all it gains you is a tired day tomorrow. Now, if you sleep and don't worry, and you get up and go look for work, or create some work, or whatever you do the next day, and feel good doing it, wonderful. But worry doesn't help a thing. Well, God says, don't indulge in it. Get over it. Well, I'm just such a worrywart, you know, People have started saying that when they were 15 and they're still saying it when they're 85. Why well, i such a worrywart. Well, time to repent. You've been that now for 70 years. Time to overcome it. Time to be different. Quit worrying. That is the basis of faith. A trust, a confidence that God is not going to allow you to starve to death. And he isn't. I've been in the church now for over five decades, five and a half for more. You know, I have never yet seen anybody in the church of God starve to death. It has never happened in my experience. God takes care of the little ones one way or another. You know, it isn't really starving to death that bothers you anyway. It's losing your car or how you're going to pay your credit card off, or how you're going to get the limit raised so you can keep using the infernal thing. You know, people throughout the last 6,000 years have truly worried about starving to death. And there are millions of people on this earth today who are literally starving to death. Dying of malnutrition and hunger. None of us have that at the moment to worry about. Americans appear to have, for the most part, plenty to eat. And some of the people who weigh the most worry the most about where their next meal is coming from. Maybe they should put some effort forth to go get a job. The Bible itself says very plainly, if you don't work, you don't eat. Very plainly. And if we enable someone not to work and feed them anyway, we are enabling them to disobey God. It just never ceases to amaze me when you see those programs of somebody who weighs five, six, seven, eight hundred pounds, Can't get out of the bed to even go to the bathroom. Can't get through a door. And yet people bring them food. Buckets and buckets of Kentucky Fried Chicken and Ding Dongs. Because they feel so sorry for them and they're so pathetic. Oh, I'm just starving to death. Bring me No, you're enabling them. You are sinning by promoting sin in their lives by feeding them under those circumstances and some circumstances that are a lot less dramatic than that. Get off your lazy behind and go to work doing something instead of laying there begging for someone to bring you food. It is not only the ones who won't work, but those who enable them not to work who are sick, in providing what they should not have. Do you give cigarettes to a smoker? Do you give alcohol to an alcoholic? Do you give more food than they ought to have and the wrong kind of food to a foodaholic? It's all the same. It doesn't matter whether you're skinny or fat. The worry is wrong regardless. Trust God and do your part, and you will be taken care of. He promises us that. Doesn't he number your head? Doesn't he count the sparrows? Yes, he does. Verse 22, he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, take no thought for your life. should be really anxious thought. I mean, we should think about our life and what we do and how we do it and whether we work and how we work and all those things. But anxious thought, worry in other words, fear. Take no anxious thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for the body what you shall put on. The life is more than food and the body is more than raiment. Raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more are you better than the fowls? Now, does the bird sit in the tree and say to God, bring me food? No, God has provided a system here, an ecosystem that has food in it, and the bird actually has to fly off the branch and go out and find it. But God has provided, and he has provided us with an earth that has the capacity to feed us. And sometimes we need to fly off the branch and go find it. Like the birds have to do. The bird doesn't worry about it. He just flies over and looks for something to eat. But God says, we're to be like them. Don't worry about it. Just go find it. It's there. Either someone will pay you to work for them and give you money so you can buy food, or if you can't find a job, it is quite possible to go out and grow food. I know that's an unrealistic consideration, but we'd rather live in a virtual reality and pass food and crops back and forth on a unreal stream that produces nothing than we had go out and actually grow something and have reality. The reality is if you put a seed in the ground and water it, it grows and it produces tomatoes or something. And anything you plant on a TV screen does not grow anything. That is not reality. Let's get real. Let's get a life. And which of you with taking thought can add a stature to his stature one cubit. Can you make yourself 18 inches taller? If you then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take anxious thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say to you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And that's what it really comes down to, is that we believe in God, we trust in God, and we move forward in that faith, not worrying, but working at whatever our hands can find to do that is good and right, and God will provide. Seek not you what you shall eat, or what you shall drink, neither be you of doubtful mind. He's just saying, don't be negative, don't be doubtful, don't be fearful, don't be worried. You do your part, I'll show you my faith by my works, but you do trust in God, and therefore you don't worry about things, you just go about producing things, and God has given us an environment that we can do that in. And if we put forth the effort, he's not going to let us starve to death. He will take care of us. He has provided. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And they do, don't they? Yes, they do. And your Father knows that you have need of these things. So there is a need there. Yes, you need to eat. You need clothes. But God is not unmindful of that. What he wants is us to learn to trust him rather than live in fear and worry and doubt and negativity. There is no room for negativity in our minds. There is only room for belief in God and move forward. And every one of us has to fight that. It's a battle that every human being faces. Now notice this. But rather, verse 31, seek you the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. If you are with your might seeking the kingdom of God and doing those things that will help bring that about the prayer, the study, the fasting, the meditation on his ways, the overcoming and changing of the things that you think and do. If you're really seeking the kingdom of God, first, then all these things that we physically need will be added. Do you believe that? God says it's true. Now our problem is so often we seek the physical ahead of seeking God, and therefore his help is not forthcoming. Because we're not walking forward in faith. We're holding back in fear and saying, Well, I've got to take care of this and then I'll seek God. No, I'll seek God first. Put Him first. And all these things will be added later, is what he's implying. Verse 32. Now here is God's attitude toward the whole thing. Fear not, little flock. We would be included in that. Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom his attitude, his mind, his approach, is that he is eagerly awaiting. He is supportive of. It would just tickle him all over. It would give him good pleasure to give us the kingdom. He can hardly wait to give us the kingdom of God. Now, God can be painted, if you follow certain scriptures without the others to balance them. He could be made to be out, out to be made a fearful ogre. Someone who's waiting to smash us with his thumb, who would rather see us go to hell than to heaven, as they say. So it's a religion of the wrong kind of fear. Fear of damnation. That is not his attitude at all. His attitude is, man, I just hope <laughs> they'll straighten up and put me first and give me opportunity to give them the kingdom of God. He wants to give us eternal life. He sees 99.99999% of the earth who will not obey Him. And then there is this little flock that He is just so desirous of giving His kingdom to. He can hardly contain Himself for wanting to give you and me his kingdom. Why will we die, O Israel? Why don't we obey and put him first and live? But we worry about so many things. We worry about our children. We cannot entrust them to God and figure he will take care of them. He loves them more than I do. Do any of you count your children's hair? No, you don't. God does. He knows them all intimately. He's more concerned for them by far than you could ever possibly be. Do you trust him with them? We worry, well, are they convert Well, will they repent? What's going to happen to them? Leave it up to God. He loves them. You can't convert them. You can't change them. Now, when they're still small, you can work with them, and you can point them to God, not live in fear that if you bring them toward God, they'll rebel and go to the world. That is a philosophy and an approach that will guarantee faith. Believe it. Pull out all stops to draw them near to God, and you draw near to God. And that's your best hope, that God will take care of your children. But if you compromise with the world, and you let your kids compromise with the world, Satan will pull them away. Let's understand that principle, that understanding. It's move forward to God. Can I come to you? Yes. Come! Believe me. Keep your eye on me. Come! Come! and I will take care of you. Put your eye on the world or worry about whether it's going to be good to come to God or not. You're going to sink in the water. That's the way that it works. I'm not here to jump all over in that sense. I'm here to explain how sometimes we reason ourselves into a mode or approach that guarantees failure, and we need to understand how to get out of that and what God would have of us that will work. We can't call our children anyway. He has to do that. And he is not calling most of our children on purpose because he's working with this generation for the most part. And he will call a few of them. But he's the one that has to determine that. We cannot. We can only set an example, do the best we can, pull away from the world ourselves, help them get loose from the world, not help them stay partly in it, but help them get loose from it and live a life of reality, not false, vicarious fantasy, which is what most of them are living in today with their five or six different screens that each possesses. I don't want to get too much into that, I said, but it, it comes into this because those are the things that people tend to begin to trust in, spend their time in. And I know if you're spending five or six hours a day on whatever your little fantasy world is, you are not praying, you are not studying and fasting and putting God first. It's just so easy to waste time. Not that one particular thing would be wrong but it becomes wrong when it gets in the way of our relationship with God and takes our time. That's when it becomes a sin because idolatry is the first and biggest sin. And if we put things ahead of God and put him on the back burner, then we are breaking the first commandment. So when you're sitting in that front of that screen hour after hour, there comes a point, and I don't always know where it is, there comes a point where it becomes idolatry. It may not be in the first five minutes, might not be in the first however long, but it can become that. And if that is your first interest in the first place, it might be idolatry in the first five minutes. It depends on what's going on in that head is what it depends upon. Now, I said we were going to finish today, So I'm going to move on from Luke 12. Let's go to John 12. (coughs) I didn't say what time we would finish, did I? John 12, verse 15. Now this is when Christ was writing in before, on the Passover, before the Passover, which would culminate in his death. And verse 14, and Emmanuel, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written. And what did he say? He could have said probably a lot of things as he rode along on a donkey. But what did he say? What was his message? Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king comes sitting on an ass's coat. That was his message. That was what he had to say. Now, this was leading up to the most important time that has ever occurred in any individual's life. Our Savior was being brought forth, prepared and ready to die for us. He was facing the greatest fear that a human being can face, having read the Scriptures all his life in Psalms and Isaiah and various other Scriptures, About how badly he would be tortured, how much he would be mocked and scourged, and then killed. All of that was coming up in his mind as he moved into Jerusalem preparing for those very events. So he was encompassed with the circumstance, the reality, that all those things he had read about were now... Here, And it was a fearful thing for him. Did he have the fortitude? Did he have the faith? Did he have the trust? Could he go through with it? Later on, he said, I wish this cup could pass from me, but not my will. Yours be done. So it was a fearful, a scary thing. How did he handle it? He prayed to God. He went to God. He was fortified by the Spirit and the power of Almighty God. So as he was going into this situation, his message was, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Now we are one of the daughters of Zion. I hope we can be a fair and virtuous daughter of Zion. In the way that we live and the example we set before the rest of the church in the world. And I hope we can be used of God to be one of those daughters of Zion who feared not but had faith and trust and belief and knew that God would see us through everything that is to come and protect us and help us. Romans 8. See how fast I got across there? Romans 8. Let's uh, well. Let's just read verse 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Now, when they had lived in Egypt as slaves, they had Egyptian taskmasters who had staves, who had whips, who had various things to inflict pain and misery on them if they let up for a moment, didn't work as hard as they thought they should be. So in slavery with impossible taskmasters comes fear and worry. It says, you've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We don't cry out to the Egyptians to quit hitting us, or in this end-time circumstance, Egypt, modern Egypt and modern Babylon around us, who are buffeting us about, but we have received an adoption from God. We are His children now, adopted by the Spirit at baptism and laying on of hands. So it is not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of oneness as a child to his father. Now, a child needs to respect and fear his father for fear of penalty, for fear of spanking, for fear of being punished for wrong acts or wrong attitudes. But at the same time, that child should be where he can crawl up in his father's lap and put his arms around his father's neck and feel secure and strong there. And that's how God wants us to feel. Now that child knows if the dad says no, and he goes and does the wrong thing, he's going to get spanked. And yet his father shows him so much love and so much affection and so much care, apart from that, that he knows if he's doing right, his father will hug him and kiss him and love him and be close. And really, all the spanking is for is to restore the right attitude and balance in things. So many people fear their children. No, don't fear your children. You are the adult in charge. Remember? If that child has a wrong attitude or is doing the wrong thing, you apply a penalty which startles him out of his wrong behavior or attitude and restores a loving, cooperative, non-rebellious, sweet disposition. And then you're back into loving arms. And after you punish a child and his attitude changes, and don't quit punishing until his attitude does change. If he's still pouting and rebellious And in a negative attitude, you aren't done yet. And the reason this goes on and on is because you never finish the job. There are not problem children, there are problem parents. Just as Caesar says there are not problem dogs, there are problem owners. The dog only does what the owner allows, and the same is true of children. If you do the job right, and their attitude is right, then it's back to the loving arms. That's the way God is with us. As long as we're still in rebellion and selfishness and self-centeredness and negativity, we cannot be close to God because God is not negative and he is not selfish and he is not rebellious. And he doesn't like being around that stuff. So when we repent from the heart and change our attitude... Then we get close to our Father again. That's how you get that relationship and keep it. And he says, the Spirit itself bears witness with our Spirit that we are the children of God. And then heirs and joint heirs with Christ. He wants to give us the kingdom. He's not against us. It is us who are against us. We are our own worst enemy. Well, almost. We have one that's worse. That's Satan. And he plays on our second worst enemy, and that's ourselves. And then we deign to go to Star Wars and Avatar and all that ilk and Harry Potter of trash, spiritual sin and rebellion for entertainment. Now, Some of you may have gone to some of those things and maybe you didn't realize what it was. I don't know of anybody here that's gone to Avatar. I'm not climbing on anybody. I'm just saying those things are demonic and we need to understand that so that we can avoid demonism. And I don't want to have to make a list of approved movies and not unapproved movies. I don't go to many movies. And I went to, I guess the last one I went to, it doesn't matter, it's been decades. Or eight decades, anyway. I'm not trying to be self-righteous about that. I've seen things I shouldn't see. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that we need to grasp and understand so that we can avoid those things that might cause harm to our relationship with our Father in Heaven and draw us closer to a relationship with the devil, which we don't want. All right, let's move on. 2 Corinthians 7. And here I want verse 1. Having therefore these promises that God has given us about being sons and daughters of God above, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, body and mind. Perfecting holiness in godly fear. We should fear to disobey God. We should fear to think things that are ungodly. We have to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Perfecting holiness. If something is unholy, we need to stay away from it. We separate the clean from the unclean. Philippians 2. Just some very piquant scriptures here. Very good advice. Philippians 2 verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but you have your own character, you have your own mind, you have your own self-control, not just because the preacher's standing around is what he's saying. preacher has his own problems he's got to overcome. But before God, that's the point. But now, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. Work out these fears, this lack of faith, this lack of obedience with fear and trembling, knowing that you, are, you have a relationship with God Almighty who controls not just how long you live physically on the earth, but whether you live forever in peace, safety, and happiness without fear or tears. Work it out, but understand God's attitude. For it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. His good pleasure is to give you the kingdom, little flock. He is pulling for you. He wants you there. He will do all he can to help you if you will help yourself. Show your faith by your works. 2 Timothy 1. And here I want verse 7. Now here is the attitude that God would have us have. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God has not given us the spirit of fear. Now we just read that. Not the spirit of fear in slavery or bondage, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's what the Spirit of God imparts to us. Not fear, not negativity. If you have negativity, fear, and worry... It is not coming from the Spirit of God in you. God does not put out those vibes. If you have those, it is your human nature and or Satan working on your human nature. God did not give us the spirit of fear. That isn't a gift of His. It didn't come from Him. That's you. His Spirit gives us power, it gives us love, and it gives us a sound mind. A fearful, trembling, worried mind is not a sound mind, is it? It's a troubled mind. It's an insecure mind. It's a fearful mind. And all of those are miserable states of mind. So, don't wallow in that which comes from you or the devil, but revel in the Spirit of God and approach life with power, with love of others, and a sound, secure, stable mind. And if you don't have that, go to God on your knees and cry out that he give you faith and trust and patience to wait on him as your Father, who loves you and wants to give you life eternal. That is power and love and sound-mindedness, stability. Hebrews 4. Uh, Here I want verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, his millennium, Any of you should seem to come short of it. The thing that we should fear, not the things around us that have to do with this physical life, but the fear we should have is that we fail to enter the kingdom of God, which is the reason he put us here on this earth. If you fail to enter the kingdom of God, you have failed the purpose for which you were born. And our... Salvation is near. Judgment is now upon the house of Israel or the house of God. If we are converted in God's church, our judgment is now being rendered how we live, think, and react. Chapter 5, verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh When he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears to him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Christ overcame his human fears, his human worries. Did he by nature have those? Yes, he did. That's why he prayed so hard till the blood ran before his crucifixion. That's why he asked his disciples to watch with him an hour. Stay away, pray with me. Because he was human and he had every fear and every worry and everything that you have ever felt come into his mind and his emotions. It is not that those things well up in us that is wrong. It is that we do not control them and get rid of them and put them in God's hands because he says, cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. I think that's Philippians maybe. That's what he did. He was tempted in all points like as we are. So insecurity and fear and that. Feeling coming up out of his stomach into his throat, he experienced. But he found an answer to it and he did not let it, did not let it control the situation. He overcame it. He put it in God's hands. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I surrender. Do with me as you will. See, we want our own will. We want our own life. We want our own whatever it is we want. We are not always willing to surrender to God and his will and do what is right because we want to do something else. Christ surrendered. All right, I'll die, he said. Okay, done deal. You will die. Well, that's what we planned before I came down here. That's right. That's what it's got to be. Okay, I accept it. I don't worry about it anymore. He controlled the situation with his faith in his Father. That's what he expects of us. Let's go to chapter 10. Very important here. Let's go down to, oh, about verse uh, 31. Hebrews 10:31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We disobey and we fall into His judgment. That's a fearful thing. He has control over life and death. Life and death. Call to remembrance the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions—relatives, friends, bosses, whatever. There was conflict, and you had to pull away from them and obey God. And it was not easy. It may still not be easy sometimes. You were made a gazing stock, you were laughed at, and so on. You had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. And you were willing to give up father, mother, brother, sister, and follow God and keep the Sabbath and the holy days and give up Christmas and Easter and put up with their ridicule. It says, when you have trouble, remember those days and what you went through to get where you are now. Cast not away your confidence, verse 35, which is great recompense of reward. You did it once, you stood up for God against your friends and relatives and associates. Don't forget that when other trouble comes. For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. We are not of them who draw back to perdition, but of them that believe in the saving of the soul. Remember what Timothy, Paul said to Timothy? You have been given the spirit of power and of love and of a sound, stable mind. Not a spirit of fear to draw back, but to move forward. in faith. And belief and trust that if you will obey God, your life will turn out right. Doesn't mean you won't have trials and troubles. God does try those and test them to be sure. He wants to know if you're going to put him first, no matter what comes along. <coughs> With Abraham, it was even to the sacrificing of his own son, chapter twelve, verse twenty-eight. Well, let's start in verse 26. Whose voice then shook the earth but, which, at Sinai. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. It's going to be a whole lot worse than it was at Sinai. <coughs> and this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as the things that are made. That those things which cannot be shaken may remain. We must be one of those things which cannot be shaken. God is going to send great earthquakes. He's going to shake the whole world and the heavens. All those physical things will be shaken. Will you? What does it take to shake you? Go without a job for three weeks, two months? Does that shake your faith? Make you begin to wonder if God's really God. He created the earth. He created the heavens. Has he forgotten you? He said, does a mother forget her nursing child? Never. And he said him, mean, he's the same way with us. What does it take to shake us? Some little something in our normal, everyday life? And he's going to shake the heavens and the earth? Don't shrink back. Move forward in power and love and a sound mind. And don't be shaken. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Everything we think and do, in the back and in the front of our mind should be the implications of those thoughts and those actions. Because God is a consuming fire, and he wants holiness. So we perfect holiness in fear of God. We don't fear jobs, men, people, things, circumstances, waves, tornadoes, whatever. Earthquakes. We fear God. Chapter 13, verse 6. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do to me. Did Paul take to heart what Christ had taught him? What he had read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Yes, he did. And he preached it. And he lived it. And he died. the same Not the same way, but as Christ did, he also died a martyr. First John 4, First <clears throat> John 4, verse uh, 18. Ooh, I'm over time already. Uh, this is important right here. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. Now there is a powerful verse. you say you love God? Do you fear? Do you live in worry and concern and fright and insecurity? Or do you trust Him and then do the best you can to take care of your physical needs, but put your spiritual needs first? We say we love Him. Do we trust Him? Love includes trust belief. If that trust and that belief is not there then he says we don't love him. If you really love God you have put your life in his hands and you trust him and therefore you don't live in fear and worry about everyday things. You do your best to take care of yourself but you don't worry. A worrier Might as well say, well, I'm just a worrywart. No, you might as well say, I don't have perfect love yet. I still worry. I don't have the love of God. The the amount that I fear shows the lack or the amount of lack of love I have. You cannot separate them. You want a barometer on how much you love God? How much do you worry If you do, you need to overcome it and live in faith. There are several in Revelation. I'll just hit, uh, well, Jude 23. Let's let's hit that one too very quickly. Jude 23, well, verse 22. Some have compassion making a difference. We need to, well, some draw them with compassion. And others save with fear pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. We have to use wisdom and when to show compassion and help somebody in that mode, and then we have to understand when to try to scare the tar out of them and what they might be doing or thinking. The ministry has to use both of those. And God says to. All right, let's go to Revelation 11. I'll hit about four here real quickly and we'll move. We'll be done. Hebrews, Revelation 11, verse 18. And the nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should give reward to your servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear your name, small and great and should destroy them which destroy the earth. So the first resurrection and the reward of the saints and the prophets has to do with the fear of God. Salvation is based on, in great part, the right fear of God. Fear to disobey and the love to obey. Chapter 14, verse 7 saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. He really is coming back, and most are going to hate Him and rebel against Him. So the idea is to fear Him and obey Him and serve Him with all your might and know that it is His good pleasure then to give you the kingdom of God and eternal life, not to destroy you. We can look forward, if we're walking in faith, to Christ's return with awe and the right kind of fear. But if we're disobeying and not doing what God says, we have reason for terror as opposed to awe. Chapter 15, verse 4. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you only are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments are made manifest. He's going to scare them to their wit's end, and they're going to die, most of them. They'll come up in the resurrection or live into the millennium, and they will learn to fear God. Our judgment is not now. Theirs is then. Ours is now. We need to learn to fear him now, because he's offered us the highest positions in the universe as the very bride of his son. Yes, we have a tougher time with the devil and with the society around us. It is tougher than it will be in the millennium. It is tougher than it will be in the great white throne judgment. But the reward is much higher. And it's worth it. And not only that, we have no choice at this point because we're already in it. And we have to see it through. So there's no time to draw back. Chapter 19, verse 5. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and you that fear him, both small and great. If we have the right kind of awe and respect and obedience to God, we'll be there, front and center, ready to accept the reward of marrying his son, and going to his the Father's throne to do it. One more, Revelation 21 and verse 8. Well, verse 7. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful, notice what's mentioned first, the fearful and unbelieving, and those two go together, and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death." You may just consider yourself a worrywart or insecure or fearful. God lumps fear and unbelief, and that is simply faith or lack of faith, in the same pile the same lump as abominable, as murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. There is no difference between being fearful and timid and worried and a worrier than there is in being a sorcerer or an adulterer or a murderer or a liar. All will miss the kingdom of God. How many times did Christ say, O you of little faith? Just believe and it will happen. It is the unbelief. It is the lack of faith. It is the living in a wrong kind of fear of things around us in this world that leads us not to fear God and allows us to lie and cheat and steal and do all those other things that are listed here. You see, being fearful and worrying is idolatry. It is putting your physical concerns ahead of your worship and fear of God and your trust in Him. So it is putting you and your circumstances and your concerns ahead of God and that is idolatry. Just as Colossians says, Covetousness, the 10th commandment, is idolatry. It's a full circle. Fear, worry, is idolatry. It equals idolatry. They're one and the same. You are, if you worry and fear and are insecure and shrink back, instead of moving forward with power and love and a sound mind, you're walking in the flesh, not in the spirit, and you're committing Idolatry, and you're not putting God ahead of everything. Let's understand that. This is about as important a concept as there is, brethren. I've spent a lot of time on it because we're entering a fearful time and things are going to get worse with unemployment. Things are going to get worse in this world. Things are going to get worse from physical danger from the powers that be. We're entering a troublous, fearful time. But if we are fortified with the Spirit of Almighty God, we will not worry. We will not be frightened. We will put God ahead of everything and worship Him above everything else. And we'll put aside everything from this world and seek God with our whole hearts. And if we do that, He says, we will find Him and he will bless us and protect us and take care of us. Believe that, and it will happen.